I love you, Charlie. The Jodcast. Washing up on a beach near you. With Adam Averson, Fiona Healy, Monique Henson, Matthias Malenta, Haratina Magasanu, Ian Morrison, Max Potter and Hannah Stacey. The Jodcast. December 2015 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Hannah and joining me in the studio are Fiona and Adam. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Hey. <laughs> in the show this time, <laughs> Monique and newcomer Max Potter interview Tom Kitching about cosmic shear and Ian Morrison and Haritina Magasanu take a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But before we get to that, uh, we have Matthias Malenta, uh, who's another new voice in the Jodcast, uh, with this month's news. This month in the news... 100 years of general relativity, new fast radio bursts discovered, and the closest rocky planet. The last week of November marked the 100th anniversary of the announcement of one of the most famous theories in the world, Einstein's general theory of relativity, a result of an effort almost a decade long to incorporate new relativistic physics into accelerating frames. This discovery drastically changed the perception of space and time. Unsurprisingly, Einstein's ideas were rejected by many prominent scientists at first. One of the main predictions, the fact that light does not travel in straight lines in the vicinity of massive objects, was tested and proved almost four years later by the now famous expedition led by Sir Arthur Eddington to observe the solar eclipse on May 29, 1919. A photograph taken during the eclipse revealed that some stars were in different positions to their usual place in the sky. It is worth noting that Newton's theory of gravity also predicted the bending of light's trajectory by massive objects. The effect, however, would be only half as big as the one predicted by Einstein's GTR and ultimately measured by Eddington and his team. Within days of the announcement of this proof, Einstein became one of the most famous scientists in the world, which he remains until this day, and his theory has changed the way we look at the universe. Thanks to this discovery, new areas of physics were born, such as modern cosmology. Today, the general theory of relativity still remains one of the standard tools in the arsenal of modern physics. Gravitational lensing is used to probe the distribution of ordinary and dark matter on large scales. Microlensing is a successful method of searching for extrasolar planets with more than 40 objects discovered to date. The work started by Karl Schwarzschild helped us to discover supermassive black holes in the centre of galaxies and study their influence on galactic dynamics and evolution. Thanks to the general theory of relativity, we are now able to trace the evolution of the universe almost right down to the very beginning. The biggest discoveries are however yet to come. The hunt for elusive gravitation waves still continues, with many teams working around the world to provide an answer on the validity of their prediction. Important work is also being done where scientists are trying to combine the general theory of relativity with another revolutionary development of the 20th century, quantum physics. The general theory of relativity still stays strong after 100 years, 
been considered as one of the most extensively tested theories of modern science, and despite many claims that it fails to fully explain the evolution of the universe, will it hold for another hundred years? We might soon know the answer as new tests and theories are being developed to test gravity in the most extreme environments on cosmological and quantum scales. Five new mysterious objects, known as fast radio bursts, have been discovered by the team of scientists conducting searches as a part of the High Time Resolution Universe Survey. This increases the number of currently known FRBs to 16, with 15 of them detected in Australia using the 64-meter Parkes radio telescope and only one at the 300-meter Arecibo in Puerto Rico. One of the discovered bursts shows an interesting structure with two clearly visible peaks separated by around one millisecond, making it the first such event ever discovered. Further analysis showed these two peaks were emitted at the same distance from the Earth, implying a common source. The overall characteristic of this event challenges a number of theories currently proposed to explain the origin of fast radio bursts which usually predict a single burst coming from a catastrophic event, such as an evaporating black hole or collapsing neutron star. One of the theories that can possibly explain this and other FRBs is the one of giant and supergiant pulses. It predicts that some pulsars will emit extremely bright pulses tens to hundreds times brighter than their usual radiation. These are predicted to be extremely rare events with repetition periods ranging from months to centuries, which explains why the efforts to observe some FRBs did not bring any redetections. The number of neutron stars in the observable universe that can produce them is however sufficiently large that radio astronomers should be able to observe a significant number of sources. More objects will have to be discovered to reach a definite conclusions. Significant efforts are now underway to develop new techniques for FRB detections and follow-up observations at different wavelengths, including optical, infrared and X-ray. A new planet has been discovered in the relatively close neighbourhood of our solar system. GJ1132b was detected through transient and Doppler shift methods, with the former providing information about the radius of the planet, and the latter about its mass. This 1.2 Earth radii and 1.6 Earth mass planet orbits its M-dwarf host star, which was found to be at the distance of 12 parsecs, that is, 39 light-years, through trigonometric parallax measurements. This makes GJ1132b the closest rocky extrasolar planet discovered to date, more than three times closer than the previous air-flight record holders, three planets orbiting star Kepler-42, 39 parsecs away from the Sun. Despite its mass and radius, GJ1132b is most probably nothing like Earth. The small orbital period of 1.6 days means the planet is very close to its host star, at a distance of only 15,000 of an AU, which is 1.5% of the Sun-Earth distance. At such a small separation, GJ1132b is expected to have a surface temperature of around 250 degrees Celsius, 
150 degrees above the boiling point of water. This puts it closer to the harsh environment of Venus rather than the cozy one we are used to here on Earth. Scientists are now planning further studies, including spectroscopic observations, hoping they will now be able to conduct detailed studies of the planet's atmosphere. This should provide new knowledge about the formation of planetary systems and the evolution of the atmospheres in extreme environments. Thanks for that, Matt. Now we have Monique and Max Potter, another newbie, interviewing MSSL's Dr. Tom Kitching about weak gravitational lensing, the Euclid telescope, dark energy and cosmology. Hi, I'm here today with uh, Max Potter, who's helping along with the interview, but also with Tom Kitchen from MSSL. Hi, Tom. Hello. Um, welcome to the Jodcast. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, I think it's your first time. Um, Hello, I'm Max, and I'm helping out with the interview today. Uh, Max is also new to the Jodcast, so new faces all around. So you gave a great talk, Tom, earlier on cosmic shear. Would you be able to kind of give us an overview about what you do to start off with? Yeah, so I'm a cosmologist I'm working at Millard Space Science Lab in Surrey, which is actually part of University College London. And I'm a cosmologist, so I'm working on trying to understand the large-scale features of the universe, so um, how the universe evolved as a function of time and what will happen to it in the future. And the main method that I use to do that is called cosmic shear, which is a particular variety of something called gravitational lensing. Would you be able to go into a bit more depth about what gravitational lensing is and like, if you look at a particular type? Yeah, so gravitational lensing is the effect where the light from a background object is distorted along the path that the light rays take um, between that object and the observer. And it's exactly analogous to optical lensing. So if you imagine a sort of normal magnifying glass, then you can't actually see the glass because glass is a transparent material. But you know the glass is there because it's distorting the background images of the objects you can see through it. And it turns out that space-time works in a very similar way to, to glass in that case. So in the universe we have massive objects and they're distorting space-time as it was predicted by by Einstein in general relativity. Um, and that distortion causes the light rays to be distorted in a very similar way to an optical lens with a bit of glass. And so if we see galaxy images or images of other objects that have been distorted in a similar way to a magnifying glass, we can tell there must be something in between us and those galaxies causing that distortion. And in our universe, it's filled with a transparent material called dark matter and so you have clumps of dark matter which are bending space-time and causing magnifying glass-like effects that we can see and that's gravitational lensing we're trying to measure this with data to basically map dark matter in the universe yeah that's a good explanation i really i liked in your <clears throat> talk you gave you had like an image of like a bottom of a wine glass over some kind of squared paper or something and that showed yeah. it really well yeah so next time you're having a you know, glass of wine or um, water or whatever, out of a wine glass, then the bottom of the wine glass where the stem comes down and then begins to flatten out causes very similar distortions to what we see in the universe. So next time you're sitting at a table and there's a tablecloth with a wine glass and you look at the type of distortion that the wine glass is causing, those are very similar shapes to what we see in um, pictures of galaxies. No, I thought it was great. It's, it's a really a simple demonstration, but it's, it's really effective. Um, yeah. 
lending has kind of been in the news even recently because of the recent tension, well, kind of recent now, tension with the Planck results. So would you be able to like, explain a bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so you can use gravitational lensing to not only sort of map dark matter, but you can also use it to try and learn something about cosmology. And the method for using gravitational lensing to learn about cosmology is known as cosmic shear. Shear is just a sort of technical word that describes the gravitational lensing effect and and cosmic refers to the fact that we can use it for cosmology, obviously. So there's this method called cosmic shear and we use that to try and extract information about how the universe has evolved over time. And cosmic shear isn't the only game in town and there's many other ways you can measure the evolution of the universe over time and use that to measure cosmological parameters as well. And the most successful method uses a data called a cosmic microwave background, which is the the afterglow of the Big Bang from about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, when the radiation from the initial event, Big Bang, became decoupled from the from the matter in the universe. And we see that sort of decoupled radiation as microwaves on the sky now wherever you look on the sky you see microwaves that are the that is sort of afterglow of the big bang and those measurements were used to determine cosmological evolution they found particular values for how matter in the universe has clustered as a function of time so as the universe evolves matter clusters more and more as gravity pulls everything together and the slightly um, interesting and controversial point at the moment is that the the amount of clustering that you find in the universe when you use the cosmic shear measurements is different to what you find when you use the cosmic microwave background measurements. And this difference is referred to as a tension. There's some tension in the results which needs to be explained somehow. So it's really quite worrying that you've got these two big results really coming from very different data sets and they're showing that they don't really agree. What are the current ideas about what might be causing that discrepancy? So the two measurements measure how the total amount of matter has clustered in the universe. And because we live in a universe which is dominated by dark matter, if you only assume that your data set has, um, is measuring dark matter only, then your inference of how matter is clustered may be incorrect because we know there's not just dark matter in the universe, but there's ordinary matter. We're made out of ordinary matter and um, so it obviously exists. And the way that the ordinary matter interacts with dark matter is one way that we could resolve this tension between the two experiments. So, for example, the way that supermassive black holes change the distribution of matter in the universe could be one way that we could resolve the tension. So supermassive black holes can cause jets to come out of galaxies, which can basically push matter away from those galaxies and prevent the dark matter around those galaxies from clustering by basically blowing it away. So it's um, that active galactic nuclei. So that's active galactic nuclei, what we call AGN. And so AGN evolve in the universe as well as dark matter. So the interaction of the evolution of AGN and dark matter may be what is causing this tension. So it's not just a one-way thing, like so they're both changing over time as well. Yeah, it's a it's a very complicated like feedback process, which we don't fully understand at the current time. 
something I guess that it might be quite a while until we do fully understand it because it is so complicated it's difficult to model as well. Yeah so we originally thought that cosmic shear was going to be a method to extract cosmological parameters that would be largely free of complicated astrophysical modelling and processes and what we're realising because of this tension that we're now seeing is that we're going to need to start to understand not only the sort of gravitational lensing effect but also the complicated astrophysics of galaxies and clusters and groups of galaxies including how hot x-ray gas clusters in the universe how AGN affects the dark matter clustering and so on so yeah it's a very complicated lots of work process, still to be yeah. done yeah lots of work yeah I guess that's always the way that you start off yeah. thinking it's going to be fine and all straightforward and then there's yeah. one thing yeah. and then another thing and yeah 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 eventually you get there so in your talk earlier on, you were talking about how um, the current way we do cosmic shear is we tend to just do it in like 2D. So you're looking at kind of just one fraction of the sky, but really you've got depth information there as well. So things are further away. Yeah. And yeah. you were talking about how you can use that information as well. Yeah. So the cosmic shear signal, if you think about how the type of geometry that our data set is, then it's a three-dimensional data set we have. So every galaxy which has gravitational lensing information imprinted on it has an angle on the sky and it also has a distance away from us. So it's a three-dimensional data set and furthermore it's not only three-dimensional, it's in a spherical geometry. So we're really dealing with a particularly difficult geometry of our data set where it's three-dimensional and on the sphere. So that's a difficult thing to deal with. And so the way that most people deal with that is basically to create simpler statistics, which make uh, several assumptions. And one assumption you can make is that you're not in a full three-dimensional data set, but you basically, you do something called projection and you remove the third dimension. And so you reanalyze your data, assuming it's a 2D data set. And one of the things I talked about in the talk was how you can relax that assumption and go to the full three-dimensional case which is a more optimal way of doing it because you're sort of respecting the true geometry of your data set rather than making assumptions. So when you do this projection is that essentially like assuming that all of those things are at a similar distance away? Yeah so in the 2D case you would just assume that all of your galaxies were at a single redshift or distance Mm. and then you would take several bins in distance and you would create several sort of slices like a sort of onion slice sort of universe Mm -hmm. but of course the galaxies aren't really distributed in that way so that's an approximation that we're trying to begin to relax now. So what's so wrong with kind of using this slicing what's the problem with it? So you're just throwing away information really so you're losing sensitivity to how things could have evolved as a function of distance. If you take slices, then if something has changed between one slice to the next, then you won't be able to pick it up. And also there's a sort of slightly technical point in which if you start to make too many assumptions, then the way that your statistic is sensitive to dark matter structures on different scales changes. So if you start to make too many assumptions and bin and redshift and then you start to make other assumptions in your statistics then it turns out that you can be extremely sensitive in your statistic to 
very, very small scale phenomenon in the universe. So all the way down to sort of galaxy scales, which becomes more and more and more difficult to model. And what we found is if you analyze things in a full 3D case, then the sensitivity as a function of scale is much better behaved. So you can just say, well, we understand how physics um, of matter clustering works at, say, galaxy cluster scales, and we don't need to go down to galaxy scales. And so you can then just remove all of that uncertain regime from your statistic and have a much more reliable probe of cosmology. So there's like two kind of reasons to say, like the first one is it's kind of like almost like the difference between a stop motion animation rate and a video. So when you've got your slices, it's like a stop motion animation. Yeah, that's and then, a very, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With your 3D model, it's just like having a video. So you've got all of that evolution. Oh, I'm going to start using that analogy. That's really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's the first analogy I've ever, <laughs> I've ever actually thought of. Um, that's and then the second one's more about um, because you've got this extra information, you can start separating out scales as well. Right? So if you yeah. if you know you've got problems on small scales, then you can just not use those and just look at big scales. Is that kind of what you mean? Or? Yeah, exactly. So imagine I played a like a chord from a piano. Then if you just look at the way that the sound changes as a function of time, you would see lots of sort of different notes all sort of superimposed on each other. And so unless you had a very good sort of ear, you wouldn't be able to tell exactly which individual notes that I'd pressed. Mm -hmm. But there's a very well-known uh, mathematical tool that you can use called Fourier transform, where you can use that tool to basically transform that set of sound waves into a set of frequencies where each frequency would then correspond to a different note. And that's exactly what happens on I suppose people don't really have stereos nowadays, but um, if you can imagine the sort of equaliser that tells you what sort of notes and are playing on a, on a stereo, then that's what's happening in the machine to separate out those notes. Basically, what we're doing is it's very similar to that, but in the three-dimensional sort of cosmic case. So we're sort of doing a Fourier transform, we're extracting different frequencies from the universe, and each one of those frequencies depends on different dark matter structures. And so by doing that simple sort of mathematical trick, it means you can create a statistic which is only sensitive to, let's say, the, the very low notes in the universe, not very high notes. Or you can separate out just the very high notes from the very low notes. And each sort of frequency of or sort of scale in the universe depends on the sort of dark matter, ordinary matter interaction in a very different way. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned that your field is quite excited about a big boon of data that's coming soon from, yeah. from Euclid. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Euclid and why you're excited about it and why the rest of the astrophysical community might be excited about it as well. Yeah, so I'm quite heavily involved in this new experiment called Euclid. I'm one of the science leads of this new experiment. And it's a, a new European Space Agency satellite, which is going to be launched in about 2020. And it's part of what the European Space Agency called their Cosmic Visions program. So there's a whole bunch of new satellites which are being built now and which are going to be launched in pretty near future, which cover all aspects of astronomy and physics. So for example, as part of the Cosmic Visions program, there's a satellite that's going to go to Jupiter and Jupiter's moons. There's one that is going to look at the sun. There's one that's going to search for exoplanets. And one of these is called Euclid, and that's the one that I'm involved in. And basically what we're going to try and do with Euclid 
is very similar to Hubble Space Telescope. So the Hubble Space Telescope is an optical telescope and it's taking images of the universe. And it's been around for about 25 years now. So it's time to do something new. This is quite an old telescope now. And so Euclid is like a, a sort of a new Hubble in that sense. But instead of being an observatory like Hubble where people apply for time and look at a very small patch of sky... Euclid will be a survey instrument. So what we're going to do is just trying to get as much images of as much as the sky as possible. And to give you an idea of the amount of the sort of jump in data that we're going to see, all of the Hubble data up until now over its 25-year lifetime, and if you add that all up, it's about 12 square degrees of data. And to give you an idea of how big that is, if you held your thumb up at arm's length, then the amount of sky that your thumb is covering, the nail of your thumb, that's about the size of sky that Hubble has observed in about its 25 years of operation. And what Euclid will do is very similar to Hubble, very similar resolution, but instead it will do it over practically the entire sky. So it's going to take five years to get this data after 2020. But by the time we get to 2025, we're going to have essentially Hubble-like resolution images practically everywhere you look on the sky. And so this is an absolutely massive data set for astronomy and for everyone else. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. Wow, yeah, that sounds yeah. really good. So we're all going to get better desktop backgrounds by 2025. Yeah. Is that... yeah, I have this vision of, you know, like you could have a wallpaper in your house of, of Euclid galaxies that no one's ever seen before. Oh, wow. um, you know, we think we're going to observe about 3 billion galaxies. So wow. it's a European Space Agency mission. So that's roughly, you know, a couple of galaxies for every person in Europe. Wow. I want to see that on the and, Europe uh, statistic sheets, you know, when they say, like, yeah. <laughs> money for Europe or whatever, yeah. I want to see galaxies for Europe. Yeah, and there'll be so many galaxies that, yeah, I mean, you could spend a lifetime going through and looking at them and you could never look at any galaxy twice. Yeah, it's going to change astronomy and um, in ways I don't think we can even foresee yet, but it will basically become a, a reference sky for a lot of other experiments. So... Whenever you want to have a high-resolution picture of the patch of sky that you're looking at, you can go to the Euclid data and you can download it for free. And in fact, all the data is going to be put online for free. That's the plan. After there'll be a sort of a period where the consortium will get to look at the data and then everything will be made public. So we hope it's going to be a real step change in the way we do astronomy. That sounds really good. So this sort of experiment, it's, you know, Europe level, so it's costing a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in your talk that your technique can potentially save quite a bit of money because you're not throwing away as much data as you are with other methods. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So Euclid, one of the main reasons we're building Euclid is to measure this cosmic shear method or gravitational lensing from about one and a half billion galaxies from the Euclid data set. And Euclid is a very expensive mission. It's approximately a billion euros is being spent in total on Euclid. And so in my talk, I I was just trying to make the point that if the statistics you apply to your data are not optimal and you're making assumptions which may make them suboptimal, then even if your statistic is, say, 1% suboptimal, then, you know, 1% of a billion euros is a lot of money. So, So Euclid is not only a step change in the data, but it's a step change in the sort of rigorousness that we need to apply to the field of cosmology. It's no longer the case that we can make sort of simple, simplistic assumptions and sort of get away with it because the data is so 
rich and so good that we really want to try and extract every sort of bit of information from it. Because you want to make the most of that amazing data set, really. Yeah, you want to try and extract, you know, every tiny bit of information you can from this data. I guess it's going to be a huge challenge just using that data set, right? So if you've got three billion galaxies, well, like from a cosmic shear perspective, you've got a lot of shapes to measure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But even from the people, I imagine people are going to look at the individual galaxies themselves. And Mm -hmm. that's that's a huge undertaking, really. Yeah. Um, I don't think I thought before about how big a step Euclid is. Yeah, there's. Um, I should say that it's not only the biggest, one of the biggest data sets that astronomy is going to produce, but it's already one of the biggest astronomical consortiums in history. Mm-hmm. So there's approximately two thousand people working on Euclid oh, at the wow. moment, and so there's a lot of work going into preparing for this data sort of avalanche that we're going to have. And there's there's teams of people over about 15 countries in the world and about 150 to 200 institutes and universities. And we're all working really hard to try and develop data analysis methods and like automated methods. So when the data comes down, we can analyse it as quickly and as sort of efficiently as possible. And indeed, we're trying to sort of remove any steps that rely on human sort of interaction because (laughs) the data is so huge that even if you needed like a person to look at every galaxy once just to make sure it's okay, it would take too much time. Um, Mm. So we're really moving into what's called a big data regime in astronomy where we're dealing with, with masses amount of data and we need to have really, really well written and you know, complex computer algorithms to deal with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. sounds like as challenging a computer science problem as it is an astronomical one, really. Yeah, and we're starting to talk to our colleagues and friends in in other experiments that have seen a similar amount of data before. So, for example, in particle physics, you've got the Large Hadron Collider, and and they deal with a similar amount of data. It's a different type of data in their case. But there's some tools that we can, um, and some lessons we can learn from them. But then, on the other side, um, we hope that we can sort of contribute back from the things we learn in Euclid back to society at large. So, you know, we're dealing with a catalogue of one and a half billion galaxies, and each one of those galaxies has colour, distance, shape, and so on. And just a simple problem of trying to search for a particular galaxy and look for trends in those patterns is is a very difficult problem. And, you know, if you think about the population in Europe, you have one and a half billion people. Each one of those people have different properties. You may want to look, you know, health and so on. You may want to look for trends in those populations. And so there's sort of back and forward um, between different areas of science once you get to these very large data sets. And so, yeah, we hope we can sort of not only contribute to astronomy but the things we learn about how to deal with big data can hopefully help other people as well. I think it's going to be a really exciting next 15 years for astronomy I think because you've got Euclid and you've also got the SKA and yeah, and the whole yeah. I mean Cosmic Vision which itself sounds like sci-fi I'm not going to think Cosmic yeah. Vision as a name does but it, there's you know there's a lot coming on. Yeah if you look more widely we've got Euclid which is going to start in 2020 around the same time you've got the SKA, which is going to do a similar thing, but in the radio over all the whole sky. You've got JWST, which instead of looking at very large areas of sky, is going to look like super, super resolution at tiny bits of sky. 
And then the similar thing, you've got the extremely large telescopes. You've got these like 30 meter telescopes, which are being built in Chile, and they're going to be looking at small patches of sky again in very, very, very high resolution. And then you've got experiments like the LSST, mm-hmm. Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is going to do a similar thing to Euclid over the whole sky, but instead of now just doing a single snapshot of each patch of sky, it's going to effectively take a movie of the sky. You know, it's a real um, data, you know, avalanche, yeah, and it's a really be, exciting yeah. time to be in mm-hmm. astronomy. And I also really hope someone develops some Oculus Rift stuff for this, so you can like put it on and look at all oh, of the data. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're you know, you, so much potential. Yeah, for that. yeah, you could imagine like having you know a, a sort of google glass or something yeah, and exactly. then and putting on your google glasses and seeing sort of movies of the sky mm-hmm. and euclid images over the sky that'd be really cool oh, yeah. so much potential yeah. so really exciting, exciting. <laughs> uh, well that's great thank you very much for coming on the podcast very uh, happy to to be on yeah thanks for inviting me um, yeah and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future if you're either around again um, so thanks yeah, yeah great thanks thanks. thanks for that monique and max now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so I'm up first, and uh, my odd and end is that after many years in construction, NASA has finally successfully installed the first of 18 hexagonal mirrors onto the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST. And this is the uh, the beginning of the final stage of construction. The work was carried out at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, and the engineering team used a robotic arm to move this hexagonal shape segment um, and uh, into place. The the mirror itself is is 1.3 meters across and weighs uh, 40 kilograms, so it's it's fairly large. And it's going to be um, put together in a patchwork of 18 mirrors that will act as a single primary mirror for the telescope, which will be seven and a half meters across. The full installation of the mirror is expected to be completed early next year, and JWST will finally launch in a in 2018. So the JWST is is this big new space telescope, sort of the the successor to um, Hubble, except that it's going to be working at more infrared wavelengths. So its shortest wavelength is 0.6 microns, which is just the red end of the optical spectrum. And it's going to look at everything from the earliest galaxies, so the first infrared light in the universe, to stuff in our own galaxy, so forming planets. And what I found most exciting in, in, in the sort of science that JWST will be doing is um, be able to look at the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. So. Wow. That's cool. That's... Wow. I, uh, I made a patchwork quilt once. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure it's exactly the same. It's just, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same, but I just feel like, you know, um, it's, it's easy to forget the logistical difficulties of like fitting what, what did you say? 18, 18. 18 hexagonal pieces together. Like, mm. it was hard enough for me on my living room floor, um, <laughs> uh, you know, in normal atmospheric pressure um, with my regular arms. Uh, it must be 10 <laughs> times more difficult in space with robot arms. Yeah, well, so, the, the, the really sort of daunting thing about the JWST is that it's going to go up in a, in a normal size rocket, but this thing's six and a half meters across. So what, what it's going to happen is it's folded up before it goes right, out, and then yeah. when it gets into into space, it's going to unfold. Oh, like an umbrella, something Can't like go. that. I think it's- <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how is it going to compare to the Hubble? I mean, how much bigger is it than the Hubble? Significantly better. It's going to be significantly better. I, I can't give you exact numbers right now, but um, I'm sure NASA <laughs> has those numbers on it. Yeah. So, I heard it was going to be like going to be able to directly image like exoplanets as well. Yeah, I think really, so, yeah. it's yeah, amazing. Wow. 
I know like five, ten years ago, we didn't know any or we had one yeah. exosolar planet. Now we've got thousands and mm. the next decade we'll be able to start. I just, is this a beast we should be poking? Do we really want to look that close at them? <laughs> You're taking the Stephen Hawking approach. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> they probably are looking back. I'm scared. <laughs> anyway, um, so moving on now to my autumn end. Uh, you might have heard in the BBC News recently that... Um, a piece of space rocket debris was washed up um, off the Scilly Isle um, here in the UK. Wait, is Scilly in the UK? I think it is. Yeah, it's okay. in the UK. Yeah, it's part of the UK. I don't know anything. It's one of the islands. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, they, they, they found um, these fishermen were out um, uh, in their boat and uh, they saw what they thought was a dead whale um, floating <laughs> in the sea. Um uh, and they were like, yeah, there was a load of seagulls and we thought it was a dead whale. So we tried to hook it in, but it was kind of hard to do that. And ultimately, anyway, um, it turned out to be a bit of a spaceship. Um, and um, they were very surprised, as you can imagine, uh, to quote to quote one of the fishermen. Uh, it's not every day part of a rocket washes ashore at home. Well, I, no. <laughs> I would agree with that. I'd say it's no days that happened, except, except that one day. Um, uh, that so was yeah, quite a find. Then, exactly, wasn't it, quite them? a find. And I don't know if anyone has seen the pictures. It's pretty gross. It's like completely covered in barnacles there, um, <laughs> except you can see the American flag. So, yeah, so just, we know where it came part, from. Yeah. And um, they're not sure which rocket it's from. Uh, it's either from uh, the Falcon 9, the SpaceX Falcon 9, um, which crashed in June 2015. It was unmanned. Um, uh, it was an unmanned um, SpaceX mission to restock the ISS, but it, it failed. It crashed about two minutes after launch. Um, that was in June of this year. Uh, but other people think it's from the SpaceX CRS-4, um, which was a successful mission that did not crash um, in September 2014, and that went off up into space with a lot of mice and um, some of this stuff. Um, <laughs> I just it, have to say, <laughs> this is all written on Fiona's forearm. Yeah, yeah. I, have my, I have my show notes here on my forearm. Yeah, uh, behind they, the scenes uh, <laughs> insight here. They get a bit smudged. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah, they don't know They don't know if it's from, from Falcon 9 or CRS-4. What they do know is it is SpaceX, so it is Elon Musk's fault. Mm. Um, fault? <laughs> Uh, but they don't know which one. <laughs> um, uh, they, you you should you would think they'd be able to like you know like carbon dating except it would be like barnacle dating like if there's oh, this right, many yeah. barnacles it must be X years old. Um, I would think they could figure it out that way. Yeah, that, that should work. Yeah, they? one was one was from 2014 and the other was from 2015. So perhaps someone could do an experiment. You know, get an bit of aluminium and throw it down to the bottom of the sure. sea and uh, see, see how long it takes for barnacles to accumulate. If it was an American crime drama, that's exactly what they that's would what do. They would do. But I don't think anyone cares that much about it. Right so I don't think they're going to do that. <laughs> I suppose it could be from anywhere. It could have washed a long way out, couldn't yeah, it? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, um, I guess it floats. Anyway. Must float. Yeah, I guess so. Um, considering it goes to space. Um, <laughs> it floats around in space. <laughs> highly scientific <laughs> insight there. I'm not a spaceist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know dear. I know about radio telescopes That's <laughs> true They're on the ground so <laughs> They are And I don't think they float no. <laughs> Maybe they would They're kind of round <laughs> They are Okay <laughs> Okay <laughs> Oh I've had so, a lot of coffee today Yeah <laughs> Let's move this along Move along Move along Back into <sighs> space again Deep With the moon Yes <laughs> Yeah 
this is more sort of a, a planetary science end of things than the astronomy side, but it's um, a little bit about the um, the moon's orbit because it's kind of tilted the moon. So it's at like a, a five degree angle to the um, Earth's equator, so the equ- equatorial mm-hmm. orbit. Yeah, yeah. So it's at a, like a slight angle, and which implies that initially it, ha- it was at like a ten degree angle, and it's sort of moved over time. Oh, that was kind of what it would do, sort of process yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit. So, yeah, so based on that, it should have been at like a 10 degree angle when it was formed, which is a little bit weird. It's not what you'd expect. You'd expect it to be very close to like an equatorial Mm. orbit. And so they think someone, something's come by and like disturbed it a little bit, like some... Aliens. (laughs) Maybe not aliens, maybe like um, some debris or something. Space debris that sort of upset the the, uh, orbiting debris that was forming the moon and sort of set it on a little bit of a tilt which is why that it's now at this slightly odd angle wow yeah that's really interesting so they've actually figured this out because of um uh some evidence on the earth's surface of certain elements like gold which sort of attaches itself to iron right so somehow this is evidence for this early interactions with the uh moon okay that's really random yeah it's kind of it's, it's it's sort of more planetary science, so it's not normally yeah. our field, but so it's kind of interesting. It affects, that so the tilt of the moon affects how gold and iron behave here on the Earth. Well, um, I think it's evidence that that there was some kind of upset in the um, right. debris disk. Okay, that was forming the moon. Ah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. It's amazing that the, the little things that they can figure out just from looking, yeah. looking at seemingly random stuff. We don't send a, in the ground. Yeah, they we don't can, sort of interact much with the planetary no. science of things. But there is no. a big overlap between them, really. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, moving on now to a man that is always upstanding. Here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for December two thousand and fifteen. Well, no one can complain about not having long, dark nights. I only wish that it was somewhat clearer. November, where I live near Manchester, has been pretty dire. Anyway, let's see what one should be able to see, should the nights be clear. Well, after sunset, over in the west, the square of Pegasus is setting. Above, to the left, is Andromeda and the Andromeda Galaxy. And if you go back a couple of night skies... I do have a chart to actually show you how to find it. Moving upwards towards the zenith, we have the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, and down to its left, we have Perseus with its bright star, Murfak, and the star Algol, the demon star, because it actually winks. It's actually an eclipsing binary, and occasionally the brightness drops quite considerably. With binoculars, and preferably even with a small telescope, between the two, if you follow the line of the Milky Way which passes through them, you'll find what is called a double cluster in Perseus. It's a very, very lovely thing to look at, one of my favourite objects in the sky. Moving further down to the left, you'll come across a bright yellow star called Capella in our Riga. Again, this is a rich part of the Milky Way. There are quite a number of what are called open clusters there, which you can pick up with binoculars. And then, of course, rising towards the southeast, we've got this lovely part of the sky. First of all, you'll see the Pleiades cluster, down to its left, the Hyades cluster, with a bright star, Aldebaran, actually lying in front of it. It's not part of the cluster. And below that, of course, is Orion the Hunter. 
The reddish star top left is Betelgeuse, the bluish star bottom right is Rigel. Three stars make up its belt, below which we have in fact the sword Orion, which includes the Orion Nebula. If you go down to the left, following those three stars with a belt, you'll come to the brightest star in the northern sky, which is called Sirius in Canis Major. Up to its left is Procyon, the single bright star in Canis Minor. And going higher up still towards the zenith, we have the two bright stars Castor and Pollux in Gemini, the heavenly twins. So quite a lot to see, actually, in the heavens. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, essentially, you've got to get up in the morning to see them. Jupiter, shining at magnitude minus two, rises at about 0030 UT at the beginning of the month. It's lying low down in Leo, close to the boundary of the Virgo, into which it's going to move in January. By month's end, it rises at about 2230 UT, shining at magnitude minus 2.2. As we get nearer to it, its angular size increases from 35.6 to 38.9 arc seconds. It'll then be due south and so highest in the sky at about 0500 in the morning. The elevation of 44 degrees is not bad. It should be well above much of the atmospheric uh, problems. You should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn passed behind the Sun on the 20th of November, so obviously isn't visible at the very beginning of the month, but around mid-December it will be rising about an hour before sunrise. Now, sadly, it's lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, just over six degrees above Antares in Scorpius. So its elevation, when on the meridian, will only be about 20 degrees above the horizon. Shining at magnitude plus 0.4, it'll be high in the southeast, or high enough in the southeast before dawn, to make out the beautiful ring system. It's now opened out to about 25 degrees. By the end of December, it rises about two hours before the sun, and we'll actually see it approaching Venus, as Venus is returning back towards the sun. Mercury. At magnitude minus five, it may be seen at the end of the month, low in the southwestern sky, as it reaches greatest elongation on the 29th of December. It'll lie about 20 degrees from the sun. It'll only be a few degrees above the horizon at twilight, so the use of binoculars and a low horizon will be needed to spot it. But please don't use binoculars or look there until after the sun has set. Well, Mars is another morning object. It rises in the east about two hours before the sun at the start of December and about half an hour earlier as we moved into the new year. It brightens from plus 1.5 to plus 1.3 magnitudes and will be nearly as bright as a spiker in Virgo when it passes about four degrees up and to its left on the mornings of the 23rd and 24th of the month. It passes close to the double star Porima at the beginning of December and on the 12th and 13th skirts the fourth magnitude star Theta Virginis. By the 10th of the month, Mars' angular size will have reached five arc seconds, so it's not really going to be very easy to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. By the end of the month, it will have reached an elevation of 28 degrees above the southeastern horizon as dawn appears in the sky. 
If we wait a few months until May next year, when it's closest to the Earth, its angular size will have increased to 18 arc seconds, and that will be greater than at any time since 2005. So we hope to get some good images and see some features on the surface then. Well, finally, Venus. Well, it's been dominating the morning sky for some time now. It's, it's moving back towards the sun, but still by month's end, rises almost three hours before sunrise. A telescope would show that the angular size reduces from 17.5 to 14.5 arc seconds, but at the same time the illuminated percentage of the surface increases from 66% to 75%, which is why the magnitude only drops from minus 4.2 to minus 4.1. Venus will lie some 5 degrees from Spica in Virgo at the start of the month, pass by the double star Alpha Libri on the 17th and 18th, and be very close to Beta Scorpii as we reach the new year. Well, what about perhaps the highlights of the month? Well, pretty obviously, it's perhaps the first really good month to view Jupiter. As I said, it's lying low in Leo, but it's still reasonably high in the ecliptic, and hence when due south at an elevation of about 45 degrees. It's looking a little bit different than it has in the last few years. The north equatorial belt has become quite broad, the great red spot is currently a pale shade of pink, but also appears to be shrinking in size. Interesting. Let's see if it continues to do that. For a while, the south equatorial belt vanished completely, but it's now returned to its normal wide state. And if you go onto the night sky website of the university, you'll find a diagram showing you the various belts and bands and so on that you can see there. Now we have a comet beginning to grace our skies. It's called Comet Catalina. It's heading upwards this month towards Arcturus, which it will reach at the end of the month, that's in the constellation of Butes. Initially, it'll be lying close to the Virgo-Libra border, so it'll be fairly low above the horizon, but it's heading north at a rate of more than half a degree a day, and by month's end, as I said, will be very close to Arcturus. By the 10th of December, it will stand about 20 degrees above the southeastern horizon at 0600 UT, lying some 6 degrees above Venus. So that's actually a good day to look for it. So simply find Venus in binoculars and slowly sweep up and to the left to find the comet. A little fuzzy blob. Um, the best guess as to its brightness, and you never really know with comets, is about fifth magnitude. So not really visible to the unaided eye, but should be easily visible in binoculars. And just a few things where the planets and the moon come together. On the 4th of December, before dawn, you'll find Jupiter, two degrees above the third quarter moon in Leo. On the 6th, Mars will be just two degrees from the waning moon, also in Leo. On the 7th or 8th, Venus will be close to the moon. It would mean five degrees of the waning crescent moon. That's just as basically the moon passes down through the positions of the planets lined up in the morning sky. Perhaps the real highlight of the month would be on the mornings of the 14th and 15th after midnight, the Geminid meteor shower. We should have a chance of seeing the peak. It's a good year because there's a waxing crescent moon and that will not hinder our view. Obviously, an observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. The relatively slow meteors arise from debris released by the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. 
That's actually unusual because most meteor showers come from comets. And as you might guess with the title, the radiant where the meteors appear to come from is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Gemini. If it's clear, it'll be cold. So wrap up well, wear a woolly hat and have some hot drinks with you. I do hope you see some. I will, but I'll be a long way away and not able to take any images. After midnight on the 22nd, 23rd, there might be a chance of seeing some of the Ursid meteor showers. The peak rate isn't that great, but occasionally you do get a few more, so it's worth having a look. Um, sadly, the moon will be just before full, so I suspect only the very few of the brightest meteors will be seen. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, so look northwards at high elevation. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners below the equator, here's Haratina Mogasano with the night sky where you are. Welcome to December. My name is Haritina Mogosanu and today I am your storyteller from Space Place at Kater Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The name December comes from Latin meaning the tenth. In ancient times, it was the tenth month from the beginning of the year in March. December for most of us is the time when we prepare to celebrate together another rotation of Earth around the Sun. Of course, whilst modern life standardization and globalization sees more and more people adopting this convention, it was not always like that. Different cultures celebrated the new year at different times of the year. The Romans and their ancestors, the Thracians, had it on the beginning of the spring. If I think about it, it makes sense. It is the time when nature comes back to life. But what about a place where all is evergreen, like the North Island of New Zealand? Here in New Zealand, the Maori New Year is a lunar celebration, which occurs around the shortest day of the year. That is June-July. December, on the other hand, it's the month of beautiful red pohutukawa flowers, the New Zealand's natural Christmas tree. Remembered in the arrival of the Maori ancestors when they gazed upon the land and witnessed its full bloom in action. Today it is associated with hot weather and parties on the beach, including Christmas, which is celebrated with barbecues and jandals. To someone who is used to four months of snow from November until February at minus 20 degrees Celsius, Having Christmas in the summertime seemed a little odd, to say the least, and it got me thinking. Where do calendars come from? What do people see when they look at the stars and the moon? And what do these celebrations mean for us in general? And what was their connection to the land? In the northern and central Europe, people have four very distinct seasons. Summertime can get as hot as 40 degrees Celsius and wintertime can go to almost minus 20. That is very cold. So why did they choose to live there? Maybe it was the abundance of food in the summertime. Maybe it was the beauty of the landscape. Truth is that they had to overcome four months of snow and freeze, year after year. How did they know how to provision their food 
to last until spring. They harvested grains in the summer and in autumn the most important elixir, the wine, was on its way to the cellars. They needed to know when midwinter was so they could sacrifice their wild boars. Their meat would sustain the people until the beginning of the spring. This is where the saying of chewing the fat can be attributed to. Winter solstice thus became the most important milestone for those people. How can you measure it? The moon big and round and changing patterns once every twenty-nine and a half days did not really help in figuring out the middle of the winter in that part of the world. There had to be a better way. This is why they have developed very precise sidereal calendars. In Tracia, those were designed following the Saros cycle, the cycle that predicts solar and lunar eclipses. Closer to the equator, the year is measured with lunisolar calendars. In the Middle East, the Muslims have a lunar calendar. Their new year is marked by the Ramadan, which is precisely calculated by the phases of the moon. In the Far East, the Chinese have a lunar calendar too, and they also use Jupiter to mark the time, which is why the Chinese zodiac is on a 12-year cycle, exactly the time it takes Jupiter to move around the sun once. In India, they also have a lunar calendar, and Vedic astrology is based on the mansions of the moon, also known as nakshatras. The lunar mansions once were very important in observational astronomy, especially in that of Arabia, China and India, and of Kiva, the ancient Koramia, and Bokhara, the ancient Sodiana, and it is believed that they originated from Euphratic Valley, Coptic Egypt and Persia. The mansions were 27, but usually 28, and possibly long antedated constellations or even the solar zodiac. Their antiquity is proved by the fact that there, and probably elsewhere, the list began with the Pleiades, when those stars marked the vernal equinox. The Pleiades that are so beautifully distinct and close to the ecliptic so that everyone who can see the sun and the moon can see the Pleiades too. The moon is very important around the tropics for measuring the time, as it should be. The first thing that my daughter saw on the sky was Luna, Marama, the moon. It is big, it is easily seen, and it has phases that inform many cultures about the passage of time. Truth is, at the tropics the temperature is very hot compared to the northern and central Europe. People did not need to measure the middle of the frozen snowy winter time with the precision of a surgeon like we did in Europe, but they did need to know when the tropical season began, bringing typhoons and other erratic weather patterns. This was done with the help of the moon and certain groups of stars. Equally ingenious, it's the Maori way of measuring the time. The Maori calendar is called Maramataka. Maramataka recognizes the phases of the moon with such precision that each day has a designated name. It begins with the observance of the heliacal rising of Matariki, that we know as the Pleiades, in June, following the new moon 
which marks the beginning of the Maori New Year. In Maramataka, each day has a name that also instructs on the activities that are primed to undertake, cultivate the land, fish or navigate across the ocean. The Maori realized that there was a direct link between the moon and the tides, and planting and fishing were also very closely associated with them. The Maori have a very special relationship with the moon. They use the moon and other celestial bodies to determine time throughout the year. This enabled the safety of their navigation across the oceans and the safe cultivation of their foods. The moon in New Zealand is of a rare beauty as it is birthed from the ocean or it appears from behind the mountains. It appears also upside down to someone like me who is from the other side of the world. One of our listeners told us that he's always watching the man in the moon in the northern hemisphere. I remember watching him too. And he was curious, what do we see in the southern hemisphere? In New Zealand, the Maori see Rona Whakamautai, Rona the controller of the tides. One evening, Rona traveled down to the river to collect water, but the moon disappeared behind the clouds and she cursed the moon. Marama the moon heard the curse and said, Why curse such beauty when you belong to it? And lifted Rona up to become the woman of the moon. You can see her laying down after she tripped in the dark of the Denaya tree with her water calabash behind her head. And the Naya tree is right in the front of her. For me, I was told once by a school group that there is a rabbit in the moon. I love the kids' imagination and I always look for both the rabbit and Rona in the moon. Back to our stars of the southern hemisphere and the wanderers of the night sky, the generic Greek name for the planets, Mercury is the only planet in the evening sky. At the beginning of the month, it appears as a bright star setting in the southwest an hour after the sun. It moves slightly higher in the twilight, setting 80 minutes after the sun by the end of the month. In a telescope, it looks like a tiny gibbous moon, a moon between first quarter and full. The brightest true stars are in the east and south. Sirius the brightest of all the stars, it's due east at dusk, often twinkling like a diamond. Left of it, it's the bright constellation of Orion. The line of three stars makes Orion's belt in the classical constellation. To southern hemisphere sky watchers, they make the bottom of the pot. The faint line of stars above and right of the tree, it's the pot's handle. At its center, is the Orion Nebula, a glowing gas cloud nicely seen in binoculars. Rigel, directly above the line of three stars, is a hot blue giant star. Orange Betelgeuse, below the line of three, is a cooler red giant star. Left of Orion is a triangular group making the upside-down V of the Hyades. Orange Aldebaran is the brightest star in the V-shape. Aldebaran is one of the four royal stars. 
These royal stars were regarded as the guardians of the sky in approximately 3000 BC during the time of the ancient Persians in the area of modern-day Iran. The Persians believed that the sky was divided into four districts with each district being guarded by one of the four royal stars. The royal stars held both good and evil powers and the Persian asked them for guidance in scientific calculations of the sky such as the calendar and lunar solar cycles and for predictions about the future. Other names for the Hyades were the little she-camels and were forming the second nakshatra Rohini in the Hindu astrology. Still further left is the Pleiades cluster, impressive in binoculars. It is 440 light-years away. Pliny talked about them. In Cauda Tauri Septem Quas Apelavere Virgilias, at the tail of the bull, Virgilias calls seven. The Pleiades seem to be among the first stars mentioned in astronomical literature, appearing in Chinese annals of 2357 BC. Canopus, my favorite star, the second brightest star, is high in the southeast. Low in the south are the pointers Beta and Alpha Centauri and Crux, the Southern Cross. As we talked in the November Jodcast, end of November, beginning of December, it's the time when the Grand Canoe of Tamarareti is in the sky. The bright southern Milky Way makes the waters in which the canoe is anchored, with Crux being the canoe's anchor hanging off the side. The scorpion's tail is the canoe's prow and the clouds of Magellan are the sails. The Waka of Tamarareti, the canoe of Tamarareti, was marking the times when the waters were warm and safe enough for the Maori to sail back to Hawaii, their homeland. The Milky Way is wrapped around the horizon. The broadest part is in Sagittarius, low in the west at dusk. It narrows towards crooks in the south and becomes faint in the east below Orion. The Milky Way is our edgewise view of the galaxy, the pancake of billions of stars of which the Sun is just one. The thick hub of the galaxy, 30,000 light years away, is in Sagittarius now low in the west. The nearby outer edge is the faint part of the Milky Way below Orion. A scan along the Milky Way with binoculars will show many clusters of stars and a few glowing gas clouds. The clouds of Magellan, large Magellanic cloud and small Magellanic cloud, high in the southern sky, are two small galaxies about 160,000 and 200,000 light years away respectively. They are easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night. The larger cloud is about one-twentieth the mass of the Milky Way galaxy, the smaller cloud is one-thirtieth. For Malhaut, or Hashtarang, as it was known to the ancient Persians, is also one of the four royal stars, and it's finding now its true home in the southern hemisphere. I remember watching it in awe from the northern hemisphere as it was showing the secret passage to the south to those 
who knew how to read it. Very low in the north is the Andromeda galaxy, seen in binoculars in a dark sky as a spindle of light. It is bigger than our Milky Way galaxy and nearly 3 million light years away. Jupiter, Mars and Venus are all in the morning sky. Saturn joins them at the end of the month. At the beginning of December, Jupiter rises around 2.30 a.m., reducing to 12.30 a.m. by the 31st. It is a bright golden-colored star shining with a steady light. Venus is up around 4 a.m., a brilliant object bright enough to cast shadows in dark locations. Mars is between the two bright planets, looking like a medium-bright reddish star. Jupiter and Mars rise steadily earlier while Venus stays put in the dawn. In the second half of the month, Mars is near and passing below the bluish-white star Spica in the brightest star in Virgo. At the end of the month, Saturn emerges from the dawn twilight below and right of Venus at the bottom end of the diagonal line of planets. The crescent moon will be close to Venus on the morning of December 8th. A small telescope shows Jupiter's disk with its four big moons, like faint stars lined up on each side. They change sides from night to night as they orbit the planet. Jupiter is 794 million kilometers away mid-month. The Geminid meteor shower peaks on the morning of the 15th. The meteor appears to come from the constellation of Gemini, low in the northeast at midnight, moving to the north by dawn. The meteors are clumps of dust from a comet. Friction with the air heats them up and makes the air around them glow. This concludes our Jotcast for December 2015 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Special thanks go to Peter Detterline, Chief Astronomer of the Mars Society, Alan Gilmore from University of Canterbury, and to Toa Nutone Witeareiwaka, from the Society for Maori Astronomy and Traditions. As the Maori say, Efitia nana fetu terangi, the stars are shining in the sky, kotakoto akeneiko papatuanuku, whilst Mother Earth lays beneath. May you enjoy the end of another happy rotation around the sun. Kiakaha and clear skies from the space place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks for that, Haritina. And now on to the feedback. We've got no post this week, I'm afraid. Please send Sad us face. posts. Please send us posts. I mean, we you like know it. you're not going on your holidays anymore because it's not <laughs> summer, but like, you know. Just send us a post. Yeah, we don't care where something. it comes from. From where like, you live. Yeah. 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 We'd be really happy. Cool. Yeah. And I think we've got an email, have we, Adam? So we've had an email from James Lewis um, telling us that Lave, because there was the question in the last episode, what is Lave? Uh, or Lav? is the starting system of the original space trading combat game Elite in the early 1980s on uh, computers such as the BBC Model B and the Sinclair Spectrum, which are before my time. And this is in regard to our little question we put on our whiteboard, wasn't it? Oh, yes. That someone sent in a message about um, where should they visit in the solar system. And we had some colourful responses. We did, and one of them was was about Lave 
I think, then we didn't understand what it meant. But thanks for explaining it yes. to us. Yes. <laughs> I have uh, I have played on a Sinclair Spectrum, but that was my dad's. So <laughs> <laughs> we've had a Facebook message from Stephen Lawrence, um, who says he learned something interesting listening to the November 2015 Extra Edition. What is the difference between cold dark matter and porridge? Nothing. Now, Stephen, <laughs> I don't know what exactly it is you're doing to I think your maybe porridge. Maybe not a not a fan of the porridge. Not maybe. a fan of the porridge. Well, yeah. we should get Simon to go out. And we, should, we should get yeah, our I mean, champion, our worldwide champion porridge maker. He still loves porridge, despite yeah, his yeah. uh, I'll so tell you, porridge. there, there. I would um, <clears throat> respectfully disagree. Um, I think porridge is is <laughs> neither cold nor dark. Um, <laughs> uh, it is kind of lumpy. Um, well, you're not making it right, then, are you? Yeah, but yeah. sometimes I like the lumps because it's okay. chewy. Yeah, um, and then you put bananas in Nutella and stuff. I don't know. No, Nutella, um, yeah, Nutella and polish sounds good. Yeah. Is to try that. <laughs> yeah, it's and, uh, and sunflower seeds and uh, no, 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 pumpkin seeds, pumpkin seeds. They're pumpkin really good. Seeds. And some cinnamon. So on to Twitter, uh, we've had a message from Graham Guy at Graham Guy. Who says, heard you were looking for iTunes reviews, so left you a five star one, best podcast on the net. Wow, thank oh, you. Well that Graham is thanks for that Graham. Up guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I'm happy with that review, yeah. So thank keep you. them coming. <laughs> and in response to the same question that James Lewis answered, what is love, love, live, uh Blobrana? On Twitter, uh, uh, pointed us to the uh, to the Wikipedia article about this uh, elite computer game. Uh, so thank you for that. We're now very well informed about that. Yes, uh, the that game. I, like <laughs> considering I didn't even know this was a thing until yeah. pretty much today. Um, I now know more about it than I could have ever imagined. I think on the uh, <laughs> on the, the the evenings that we hold um, computer game evenings in the lecture room here, where we should dig out something that can, is capable of playing that. And, uh, Do we and, have uh, such a thing in the building? No, what was it you play it on? A, uh, oh, you see, you used to be able to have to get cassettes and <laughs> put them true. in. I, I do remember. Oh, I do remember. <laughs> yes. um, I'm sure there's an emulator somewhere that we could mm. uh, find it on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we okay. it. And also with respect to Twitter, um, hello to all our new followers and thanks for the retweets and favourites. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.drodcast.net. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and please review us like Graham Guy. Thank We'd you, Graham. We'd be delighted. Yes, thank you again. I'm in the process. Uh, we're in the process of setting up uh, an Instagram account for the Jodcast. Um, I'm working on that at the moment, but I'm still trying to figure out how to separate the Jodcast Instagram from my own Instagram <laughs> uh, because I am sure you do not want to see pictures of my lunch and my cat. Mm. Um, so, well, maybe you do. So. What, what, if it's, what if it's the delicious porridge? Pictures of oh, the- well, you <laughs> know, actually, yeah, what point I have that up and running, I will send you lots With of pictures of porridge. Well, uh, cold dark matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I'll try and keep all pictures of food <coughs> on my own Instagram account. So one, once I figured out how to do that for sure, um, it will be up and running. But you can still contact us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. Please like us. Please, please like us. <laughs> Ask us questions. Uh, we, we can ask you questions. Yep. Um, and other people that listen to the Jodcast. Yeah, you can get yeah. in touch with Kindred Spirits. Yeah. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast. And please don't forget that you can send us post. We uh, love post. Yeah, we, we love it so much. We get so excited. <laughs> the address is on the website. Thanks to Tom Kitchen for the interview. 
Thanks as always to Ian Morrison, at Ian Morrison, and Haratina Mogasanu at Milky Way Kiwi for the night skies, and Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The editors were Benjamin Shaw, James Bamber, Neil McCallum, Haratina Mogasanu, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time, jod on. But come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, shall we try that again? Okay. Until next time, John. John.